Hey friends, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to run, but how to win. This is Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. You can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. Martine and I both work at the Campaign Workshop, a political consulting firm that specializes in political campaigns and advocacy campaigns, as well as training and strategic planning. And we're excited to talk to you and have you listen to episode two of How to Win a Campaign. In our first episode, we discussed the process of actually deciding to run for office. Things you need to consider before throwing your hat in the ring and being a candidate. And we really had a great guest in Anthony Robinson from the National Democratic Training Committee. So if you haven't listened to that episode, give it a shot. So today we're really excited because we're talking about what happens after you pick the right race. It is the right opportunity for you. You've done your personal assessment. You've done your financial assessment. And now it's actually time to run your campaign. Uh, we have a great guest later on the episode that I get to interview, Mayor Anise Parker, who is now the current CEO and president of the LGBTQ Victory Fund. Deciding the right district, deciding the office you're running for, making sure you have the resources, making sure you have buy-in with your friends and family, as we discussed in episode one, that's key. But then when you start running, the real work begins. And there's a ton of offices in the U.S. Can you believe there is... 500,000, over 500,000 elected officials in the United States. So many. Running for everything, you name it, right? So when people think of running for office, they might just think of President of the United States, U.S. Senate, Congress, but, you know, county commission, there are judges races that are elected all across the country. There are different like water reclamation boards, you name it. There are positions to run for. Yeah. I mean, my favorite, Joe, is the um, Mosquito Control Board in Florida. It's an actual position that is elected. <laughs> Mine is Railroad Commission, right? And there's a bunch of those that are super important positions and have a lot of political power and make a huge difference on people's lives. And I would say some of these local offices really affect people's day-to-day -day lives even more than federal ones. And people don't even know about it. Yeah. And so you really want to think about what is the right office for you. And once you've done that, what has been amazing to see, uh, at least in the in the years that I have been doing this work, is that this idea of uh, what a traditional or like a stereotypical candidate looks like or what people think like a po politician looks like has really been changing and, and really continuing to change, which is great. And there are also a number of organizations and groups out there that have been working to really diversify the pool and, and make it much easier uh, for folks to run for office by giving them support in training and recruitment, encouragement, so that really everyday folks who want to change their communities and doing it for the right reason have the resources they need to do that. When people think of, of the person running for office, they often think of like Bob Blow Dry. You know, he is a white guy, has a big crop of hair. And the whole idea is to like actually break that mold. And so groups like Emily's List, their state affiliates, the LGBTQ Victory Fund, Latino Victory Fund, Black Pack, Supermajority, New American Leaders, Emerge. The list goes on and on. We actually have a list of them on our blog at www.thecampaignworkshop.com. Again, like there's a ton out there and there's a lot of groups. Again, Emily's List for me is like a big organization that is focused on pro-choice women candidates running for office, but these other groups like Latino Victory or 
LGBTQ Victory Fund have very specific niches of trying to get people to engage and run. And that is super important. It's amazing that they're doing the work and we're definitely not where we need to be in terms of running for office. And we asked Mayor Parker about this in our interview later on around sort of advice that she has for candidates who don't maybe not see themselves as what a traditional political candidate or, or, or elected official should be. I remember when I worked at the Victory Fund, uh, there was about maybe 500 elected officials who identified as openly LGBTQ in the entire country of those 500,000 public offices. And I think right now it's gone up. I think we're around 700, but that's still point maybe one four of offices in the entire country where our population, depending on the research you look at, right, as LGBTQ folks, is somewhere between like four and 5% self-identify within the community. And so we have a lot of work to do. And I know that was the same for Latino Victory in the sense that the Latinx community is much, much larger. I think we estimate that there's about 52 million, which is about 16% of the population. And we still only hold about maybe 6,000 offices nationwide. So we really need folks who are parts of the community who identify with the folks that they uh, live in and around and understand that perspective to uh, to step in and run for office because it's it's definitely possible. I am a big believer in like a citizen legislature and citizen politicians. And I think, you know, my favorite candidates have been ones that are on their third or fourth career, right? Have done things in their community, are looking to really broaden out um, and give back to the community. And so I've seen some amazing folks from all walks of life, all economic backgrounds and racial and gender backgrounds run for office and do amazing things because they really embody their community and their story is something that people can believe and understand. And they have a vision for what their, what elected office should be like to help their community and the greater community. Totally agreed. We really get to the fun part right now is sort of after you've decided to run, right, you get to jump in and really start running your campaign. And as you start to build your campaign, a couple things you should be thinking about is engaging your inner circle. And what that means is, is whether you're running this year, or you plan on running five years from now, you really want to start building up and strengthening the relationships you have in your life. Relationships are key to winning. Uh, and winning public office. It's where you're going to get your supporters, your volunteers, people who are going to give you money, and most likely where you're going to get your votes from to actually win. Um, So first and foremost, I would say start your list. And that can be anybody. That can be your book club, your old college buddies, your work colleagues. If you were paying attention to the presidential race, the Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar, she famously said that she raised $17,000 from ex-boyfriends in her first Senate race, which I think is hilarious. Um, But you really want to create a list of folks that you can call upon. And that's the strategic assessment that we really talk about in episode one. But it is so critical to do that and really, really important. And To me, really understanding how much you're going to need to raise for a race and really doing that homework of saying, can I get there? Can I put down a third of the people that I need, of the dollar amount that I need to raise on paper before I actually decide to run is really important. To give you a sense, you know, some of these races are super expensive. You know, you're talking about for state rep races, in some places running for state legislature might cost $100,000. In some places it might cost a million dollars. So you really have to have an understanding of what it's going to cost and can you really do it? Yeah, I mean, even thinking about school board, one of the shockers about living in LA, right, is that 
a school board race in Los Angeles uh, school board district can cost more than a congressional race in other states. Um, so really understanding sort of how much it's going to cost is really important. But Joe, I mean, what are some common mistakes you see candidates fall into after they've decided to run for office that are really easily avoidable? Listen, I think to run for office, you have to have a thick skin. You have to understand that you are going to be undergoing a job interview for three months, six months, a year, however long you're really running for office. And you have to get used to being open and honest about who you are and people asking you questions that you might not want to answer. But you have to figure out what are the questions you need to answer, and then what is your message in the campaign, and how do you pivot back to that message? And I think the idea of really understanding why you're running and having that relate to the people in your district is so important. And again, as we've said before, sometimes people can't answer that question. They can't answer the question of, why am I running? And that's just such a fundamental thing. So I think practicing that and knowing that. And then the other thing I like to say is have people around you that can call bullshit on you. Absolutely. Have friends and family and people that can call you out and say, dude, you're reading your own press releases. You need to stop. And like- Stop reading the comments. Right. Go knock on doors. Go raise money. Stop staying up till midnight and editing your website. That's not what you should be spending time doing. And the way that you really sort of lay out the way that you could be spending your time much more effectively is by actually making a plan, right? So you really want to think backwards from election day and really plan out what is it actually going to take for you to knock on 5,000 doors, raise $100,000, right? Get that uh, 25 volunteers that you need. If you start setting actual benchmarks for yourself dating back from election day, you won't have time right, to sit up late at night and edit your website or read your comments or read your own news, right? You really want to set out um, a plan and, and really start by writing out what is your winning statement. We often tell folks in our training spaces that you want to start by writing your winning press release. If we could fast forward to the day after election day, the morning after election day, and there was a press release that came out about you winning your campaign, what would it say? It would say, Martin Diego Garcia was able to win this uh, city council seat because he talked to 10,000 voters, raised $150,000, and was turning out volunteers every weekend to knock on doors. So write out what your statement is. What is your winning statement? And use that as your sort of North Star to guide you on what you should be spending your time and energy doing as a candidate. Well, I think the great thing is that you have had an amazing interview with Anise Parker, who really has that example and that story of first running for office, not winning, learning from those mistakes, then running and winning, and what it really takes to run and win, which is the whole reason for this podcast to begin with. So I'm super excited to hear this interview. I hear it went great and can't wait to listen to it with you. And then we'll come back on the other end. And we're back. So as we mentioned before, running for office is definitely not for the faint of heart. So now try thinking about doing that 11 times. Well, our guest today, Mayor Anise Parker, did just that. So she knows a thing or two about being a candidate. And as a person from the LGBT community, your journey from going from an activist within the community to mayor of the fourth largest city in the U.S., uh, Houston, Texas, is truly inspiring to me and I'm sure to others, and I would imagine was not very easy. So thank you so much, Mayor Parker, for joining us today. 
happy to be with you and, and really excited to talk about the process of, of running for office and what it's like being in office. And now you went from city councilor to comptroller, which was citywide. And then again, obviously, mayor being citywide. Oh, my council races were city. My council race that I won was citywide. Oh, well. fan, so all of your races were citywide. Correct. Which is much different than running in a district race. <laughs> the first race I ran was a district race. It was a head-to-head campaign with a friendly incumbent. And it's very hard to beat an incumbent, particularly an incumbent whose politics aren't that different from yours, and one who hasn't had a particular scandal or mistake. My advice, don't do it. Uh, Unless you have some wedge issue that you can use to displace that incumbent. I did not. I was actually recruited by the LGBT community to run uh, as the first viable, not the first LGBT candidate in Houston, but hopefully the first viable one. Didn't turn out that way. But it was part of a broader initiative to to try to create a an LGBT friendly district. But it, it wasn't good enough to the voters to say the LGBT community needs a position on the ballot or, an L- or a, a possible seat. Uh, the federal government still doesn't define us as a protected class in that sense. And so in running against an incumbent, I had to have a compelling issue for voters to uh, decide not to vote for him. And that's what I mean by a wedge issue. There wasn't one. He was an okay guy. He was gay friendly. He just wasn't from our community. And that wasn't enough of, uh, of an issue. And so now ran twice unsuccessfully, then ran again and won nine times in a row. What on earth made you run for office 11 times? I wanted the jobs and that was three different positions. uh, And I was termed out each time, which caused me to pause and decide, do I want to look for some other place to serve or do I want to go back uh, into the private sector. And each time I paused, I said, no, I want to continue to serve and kept, kept going. But I, but I wanted the job. And I have this conversation with potential candidates all the time. And they come to me and they say, well, I want to be in office. And I might, depending on my mood, I might say, who, who the hell cares? Because it's not, the office is not the destination. The office is a tool. I wanted the job and I wanted the job because I wanted to work on city issues. I didn't run for Congress. I didn't run for school board. I ran for city council. City controller is a administrative post in the city. And then I ran for mayor because I wanted to work on city issues. I wanted to, to pick up the tool, which was the office, and use it to do things that I was passionate about. Did you find the 11th time easier than the first time? Some things got easier. Uh, I got to be a better public speaker. I got became more comfortable. I knew the, ins- the issues inside and out. But with each step up, the three different positions, I was running in uh, with positions with more scrutiny and that required more money. So the, the fundraising went up. They were all the same constituents, though. So in one sense, it got easier because by the time I ran for mayor, they'd already 
voted for me six times. And by the, you know, that 11th race, that last winning race, they'd already voted for me eight times and knew me as, as mayor. So some, some aspects got much easier, but anyone who takes any race for granted has a likelihood of losing. Uh, experienced elected officials, and by that I mean they've been in office for a while, they're in the groove, and they, they think they're doing such a great job that there's no way their constituents might not send them back, start dialing it in, that's when you're in trouble. You have to you have to run scared, unopposed or scared. Agreed. And you touched on this a little bit, and we sort of speak on it in our first episode, we talk a good bit about sort of the motivation behind running. Can you talk a little bit about what your initial motivation was for sort of jumping in those first two races? And did it change over time as the elections got bigger? I was a dedicated community volunteer for 20 years before I ever first was elected to office. I was active in a range of city issues, and I was very passionate about those issues. And I helped other people run for office who I thought would advance those issues, primarily uh, quality of life issues for the city. The first time I ran myself, it was partly because I had been recruited by the LGBT community, but it wasn't as if my only motivation was I want to be called council member. I was already working on on issues connected to the city. Uh, I think it's really, really important to match what you are passionate about and the race you run for. A lot of people admittedly run for office because they want the title or they run for one office because they think they can be elected to it, but they really want another office. I've actually served with several men who would publicly acknowledge that they ran for city council, but they really wanted to be in Congress. They were terrible council members. Local government is about potholes and garbage pickup and barking dogs. And I was a civic club president. I was intimately involved in all those things before I ever came to city council. But I had guys on either side of me who were bored out of their minds, but they could get elected to council. They couldn't get elected to Congress, and they hoped it would help them move up. For candidates who are running and maybe thinking about running uh, and potentially not being successful the first time, what made you sort of get up and run again and then obviously finally be successful, but in those first two races? I was passionate about the issues. I was president of one of the largest civic associations in Houston. I was the president of a community development corporation working on affordable housing. I was a United Way volunteer working on senior issues, and I was an LGBT activist. So those were four areas of, of really intense work. And I was spending 40 hours a week at work and 20 hours a week as a, as a volunteer on all these other things. And they all had to do with the city. So it wasn't a big step to say, I can work on the things I'm passionate about from the inside and maybe have more impact than working on them from the outside. It comes down to the passion. So switching gears a little bit to talk about what it actually feels like to be a candidate and living that campaign life, can you talk a little bit about either some of the parts you really enjoyed about being a candidate and being a campaign life and some of maybe the more challenging parts about being a candidate? 
I loved the policy side. I'm a policy wonk. I was already an active community volunteer when I entered politics, the, the two losing races and then the ones that I won. And I never, even after I lost races, I never stopped working on the issues that I was passionate about. And to be able to go and talk about issues that I thought were vital to the citizens of, of Houston, I love that. And the parts of campaigning that I like, put us in a candidate forum, stand us up in front of the room and ask us policy questions. I will win that all day long. I don't like cocktail party chit chat. I don't like retail politics because I'm very shy and very reserved and, and it's hard to get over that. And I absolutely detest dialing for dollars. I don't actually know a candidate who really enjoys that aspect of it. Some people get energized by working a crowd. I don't. Uh, but being able to compete in the arena of ideas, I absolutely loved. But it's also, it's different if you're a woman. You get treated differently on the campaign trail. It's different if you are LGBT. Uh, it's different if you're a candidate of color. There's certain things you may be asked different questions. You may be viewed differently. And you have to figure out how to navigate that in addition to navigating all the things that any other candidate has to do. Yeah, absolutely. Any challenging parts about it? particularly as you think about your personal life and mixing that with your job and balancing family and balancing all the other pieces of your life while you're being a candidate? I am blessed that the person who's now my wife, we've been together 29 years. Uh, for a long time, we couldn't get married. We've been married six years now. Was always 110% supportive. Even before I was in office as a community volunteer, but especially in office when my schedule was always crazy, she never once said, please don't go to that meeting. Why don't you spend more time at home? Not once. And when I couldn't do some of the things I should be doing at home or with the kids, she would pick up the slack. In, in a way, I was in the perfect position because as city controller, I was in an eight to five management job. A council member or mayor every civic association wants you at their civic association meeting. And there's, it, it, there's no boundaries. As controller, I actually had a had an eight to five Monday through Friday job, so I that aspect was a lot easier. So there are differences between an administrative post and, a, and an executive or, or legislative position. Mayor is a is a unique position because you are the public face and voice of your city. Mayor. Uh, governor, president, those are at different levels, comparable positions in that they are, you are uniquely identified with the role and you have a public aspect to it that uh, makes you on point all the time. I cannot be anonymous in Houston. It doesn't matter. It's not that everybody recognizes me, but I can't go to a restaurant. I can't go to the grocery store. I can't go to any public place without people knowing that I'm there and knowing who I am. And that took some getting used to. Not that people were ugly or mean. It's just that sometimes you just want to chill and not have to talk about an issue or not to, not to be on the clock. 
a mayor is always on the clock. And I know that used to, my wife was, again, always excellent about it, but the kids, not so much. Oh, I bet. You know, and, and it means that they couldn't get away with anything either because there was someone always going to tell on them because they were visible. They were visible too. Yeah, definitely. Now, we know that the campaign part is really only the interview and the job actually starts after Election Day. What were some of the most memorable pieces for you about being in public office and sort of now that you're former mayor, was it worth it? Absolutely, it was worth it. I I loved all the jobs. Mayor, clearly the, the best. There's no better political job because it's operational. You have to make things happen. And you actually have some ability to make things happen. And, and all of my races have been nonpartisan. So I was able to draw support from uh, across the city. I had a good career in industry, but every day in public life, I would say even the worst day in public life, and there were horrible days in public life, uh, was more fulfilling than the 20 years, the, every, any day in the private sector. The ability to shape the lives of the people around you, the ability to impact the built environment of your city, the ability to pass laws that change the opportunities people have or the, uh, you know, to mitigate problems, to change, transform people's lives for the better is an amazing, you know, it is a, it is a drug in a, in a way. It is, this is so powerful. I can only imagine. And so now you've taken all of that knowledge and the skills that you've gained and are helping other people to step up to run for office by serving as the president and CEO of the LGBTQ Victory Funded Institute. For those who don't know, the organization is a national organization that helps to train, recruit, and support openly LGBTQ people to run for public office all across the country at all levels of office. Fun fact, it's also where I got my start uh, in electoral politics, so it's very near and dear to my heart. And so as you thought about your initial run or when people ask you or come up to you and tell you that they are planning on running for office, is there one thing that you tell them that you wish someone would have told you before you ran for office? You know, it's a it's a good question. And there, there's no way to really convey what running for office is like. You, you have to do it. But for me, and this is, I think, true for a lot of women candidates, is that you don't have to be perfect. You have to be honest. You have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with the voters, but you don't have to be perfect. I wanted to I wanted to have an answer to everything. I actually had to learn how to how to say, you know, I've not thought about that. Uh, let me research it and get back to you because I wanted the answer and I wanted to be I wanted to be the the best student. And and I worked hard at that. And actually being a policy wonk is something I enjoy and it, and it served me well, but um, that you don't have to be perfect. And I think that it also discourages some people because, well, maybe I did something stupid here or there's maybe something in my past I'm not proud of. You don't have to be perfect in that sense either. You have to you have to figure out what your own narrative is. Maybe the stupid mistake you made is something that you can weave into the story of why you're a good representative what you learn from it, how it strengthened you. So being honest with yourself, what your, what your assets and your weaknesses are, and then figuring out a way to connect 
to the voters because again it's not who you are and what you offer it's what they need and whether you fit the needs of the voters a good candidate is the hardest working person in the campaign a good candidate understands that the people in the campaign are an extension of the values that that candidate has. And you want to treat the people who work for you with respect. And you want the people who work for you and volunteer for you to well represent you in the campaign. And then finally, a good candidate prepares before the campaign ever starts. And that is either working on particular skills that will be on display during the campaign or researching the issues or putting the team together that will be the winning element in the in the field on the on that campaign whatever it is preparation matters and the candidate sets the tone good and bad for what happens in that campaign definitely Definitely. And I mean, as you are now sort of seeing a number of LGBTQ folks running for office, I know we've had some record years in the last uh, cycle or two. Are there common sort of traps or mistakes that you see candidates falling into that you could advise our listeners who are thinking about running to avoid? Well, the first mistake is to to think that they can't win because they're LGBT or they're a woman or they're an immigrant or they're a person of color. Any one of us can win. Now, helpful to be a good candidate, to have the right race, to have the training and and the tools. But the fact of your demographics is not a reason not to run. You can't win if you don't play. Isn't that what they say in Vegas? Uh, You can't win. You can't win if you don't run. And so the biggest problem we have is that so many people think, oh, someone else needs to do it. I, I won't or I can't. So don't don't take yourself out of the game. You may not be a good candidate. You may not be the right candidate for that race, but don't take yourself out of the game without even trying. And while we at Victory pride ourselves on evaluating candidates, we only work with LGBTQ candidates. We don't work with allies. And we work at every level of the ballot. And we pride ourselves at having a pretty good sense of what a who a viable candidate is but we don't consider that we have losing candidates our candidates aren't losers they may not have won a race they may not have been successful but if they advanced issues that no one else was talking about if they engaged new people in the political process who who had thought that the politics wasn't for them or no one in government cared how they felt, they have won. They have contributed something positive. And the candidate may decide, well, I didn't win this race, but are there things that I can do to better prepare myself and win the next one? And and we're happy to, to help them do that as an organization. That's the part I like the best, convincing people that, yes, you can run and win. Now, sometimes what I'm doing is telling somebody, hey, you are in the wrong race. You've never run for office before. You've never you've never raised any money, and you're going to run for United States Senate. Probably not. But, you know, you also don't have to listen to me. Don't take yourself out of the game if you think you have a chance. 
So um, as we wrap up here, any sort of tips or tricks around uh, candidates keeping themselves sane during what is the insanity of campaign life? When I hit my house, it might be nine o'clock at night, it might be 10 o'clock at night, but I turned off the phone. I didn't respond to emails. I put in really long hours, but when I was at home, I was at home. And I, you know, if I was going to read a stack of documents, I'd do it at City Hall. I wouldn't bring them home with me. I had to like build a basically build a moat around my house so that that was my happy place. Well, thank you so much, Mayor Parker, for your insights and helping sort of lift the veil for our listeners around what it actually takes to be a candidate, run for office and live that campaign life and and post-campaign life, live uh, that public official, elected official life. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Institute, check out the links that are going to be in the episode description, uh, as well as some other resources that we're offering uh, you all as listeners uh, around what it actually takes to run for public office. And welcome back. Hopefully you found that interview as interesting as I did um, with former mayor of Houston, Anise Parker. Mayor Parker was such an inspiration. As you heard, she's an inspiration to me. Um, She has a ton of experience for running for campaigns for the city of Houston. I think there were some key takeaways there that she mentioned. I think the largest one being, right, like there is no cookie cutter sort of perfect candidate, right? But what I think there are, are those who are willing really to like put in the work and those who aren't willing to put in the work. And I would imagine you, if you've dealt in politics, which Joe, I would imagine you've seen these, of <laughs> uh, the folks who are like, yes, I want to run for office and I'm willing to put in the time and the work and the ones that are just not there for it or think it's going to be much easier than it actually is. Yeah, I mean, you just have to know yourself before you run and really make sure, is this going to be a fit? We talked about this in previous episodes about training and really going to training to understand that. But I think the more honest you can be with yourself as a candidate, the better candidate you're going to be, whether that's to figure out to make sure you have people around you who can help you do these things or to say running for office is not for me. And I think also what Mayor Parker mentioned, right, was like learning from your mistakes and really being open to that feedback that you're getting from the folks around you that that are helping you build that campaign and building your political career. I mean, Mayor Parker lost two races before she then went on to win nine and become the mayor of the fourth largest city in this country. And so there's no sort of one size fits all strategy for winning a campaign. But think about two critical things, right? Choosing the right race at the right time and really putting in the work. Timing is going to be critical. Are you running in a presidential year? Are you running in an odd off year, right? Are you running for an open seat versus running to challenge an incumbent? Challenging an incumbent is really, really difficult unless you really have sort of the public behind you to unseat that incumbent and are really willing to what the second thing was, right, is really putting in that work, taking the intentionality and taking the time to write a campaign plan, keeping yourself focused. As Joe mentioned, right, go to a training to learn the ropes, understand what needs to go into that plan, and then really starting to build and engage with your community because those relationships are going to be key when it comes to volunteers, when it comes to donors, and especially when it comes to votes. Relationships matter so much. Building those personal relationships will make a huge difference between winning and losing a campaign. We talked about earlier in the series, the idea of doing a personal assessment, writing down all of your contacts, putting that in one place. You really want to do that and figure out what your relationships are and build from that. You want to start early, engage community groups, be available, 
build a base of dedicated volunteers, leverage those relationships from your personal assessment and your inner circle, understand the priorities and values of your community. And as Anise said, really core to this is it's not about you, it's about the voter. You want to make sure you're running for the right reasons, which is to help people and really connect with them and understand their needs. You don't have to have the answer to every voter's question. You just have to be willing to find out what the answer is. It's okay for you to say, I don't know, let me get back to you, but make sure you get back to them. Yeah, really do a learn and listen, right? Like I feel like a lot of candidates have this hesitancy or this automatic reaction to when they're speaking to a community that they may not know, understand, have been involved with in the past. They either write them off completely, which don't, right? I think you going in, wanting to learn from that community, wanting to hear what their top of mind concerns are, wanting to hear what those questions are and not going in saying, here's what I think you need, I think is a great point to start, even if you don't have those relationships with those types of communities, whether it's students or a community of color or right the business community, whoever it may be, going in with that sort of listen and learn aspect, I think can be a huge asset for folks. Absolutely. So just a reminder, right, that running for office is hard. It takes a ton of work. It's also super rewarding, as you heard from Mayor Parker. And we're here to break down all of the moving parts that you should be considering as you dig into it. In future episodes, we'll talk about building a team that fits your needs, knowing the rules, especially so you don't break them, pinning down a campaign theme and a message, as well as doing those really fun fundraising asks to raise the money that you need. Absolutely. Remember, reason amount in time. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you have specific questions or comments, don't hesitate to reach out to us using the email and social media handles in the episode description. On our next episode, we'll be talking with Margie O'Mara, an amazing pollster and host of the Pollsters podcast, who will talk about breaking through the noise by crafting a compelling message. She'll walk us through how to use polling to build that great message for your campaign. So. Goodbye until next time. This is Joe Fold. And this is Martin Diego Garcia breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Hope Rohrbach, Daniel Lamb, Heidi Job, and Elena Veach. Music by Mike Pinto. Sound editing by Junto Media. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.